I read a lot of historical cookbooks as ideas for what recipes I want to focus on. And again, I'm not using the exact recipes that I find in old cookbooks, but they're kind of starting points, entry points. Uh, and then it's just a lot of trial and error and thinking about cooking old recipes in a modern context and the fact that, you know, we have tools that our ancestors, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers didn't have. And, you know, we also had ingredients that they didn't have. And so I try to take license in terms of making dishes taste good for a modern palate while still making an obvious through line to the tradition and the, the history. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. I'm your host, Beth Schenker. It feels like it was just a few weeks ago that we found a reinvented way to celebrate Passover, never imagining that this would be something to revisit for the high holidays. But here we are, experienced in ways to share special moments with family and friends during the holidays, but still feeling that's not quite right. In all honesty, I think what we prepare and how we connect these meals with our family and those close to us will make the biggest impact on how we reflect on this year. I hope that all of you, whether alone or in a safe bubble with family and friends, that you find a way to share your favorite holiday foods. It's what connects us to our past and to our community. For this special conversation, I've invited food writer and cookbook author Leah Koenig to join me. Leah has been on my radar screen for a long time. I'm not sure why I didn't reach out to her sooner, but when I participated in her session about Italian Jewish cooking during the Great Big Jewish Food Fest, I knew I had to ask her to be a guest on The Big Schmear. And here she is. Hi, Leah. Welcome to The Big Schmear. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing okay. I am frazzled every day, uh, trying to juggle work and kids and pandemic and everything else in life. But, you know, we are healthy and safe, so um, that's what really matters. Yeah, in the end, that's kind of you have to find those silver lining pieces, and um, and I'm glad you have some of those. I thought I'd start out with sharing with all of my listeners a little bit about my experience of cooking with Leah before we jump into the holidays to talk about specifics. And so, I just like folks to know that while I was preparing for this interview, I noticed that Leah provides group cooking lessons online that include making delicious Jewish food and having a bit of a history lesson about the food that you're going to cook. And I got really excited about this idea for a lot of reasons. Um, It was summer, it was hot, and why not do something fun? Um, I love learning about food, and I figured I'd be able to put together a small group of people to, to do that. So my cooking partners from four households included my daughter, Sarah, our good friends, Ellen, and her daughter, Clarissa, and spouses as sous chefs. We had a blast. We got to experience cooking with Leah in a very personal way and gain insight into everyone's cooking styles. That was interesting. And so, Leah, with all the cooking that you do, teaching classes, writing cookbooks, being a guest contributor to publications, what's your favorite thing about cooking? Oh, it's a great question. Um, Well, first I will say I really enjoyed cooking with you and your crew also, and it felt very much like a small family reunion, even though it was two separate families or, you know, a friend reunion. And so, Just in general, I've been really happy with how cooking classes have translated from in-person to Zoom um, pretty seamlessly, and you can still get a very intimate and fun feel online, so that's been really nice. 
But I think my favorite thing, you know, in terms of all the different types of work I do as a freelance food writer um, is really developing recipes for a cookbook project. I, you know, I love writing articles. I love researching, you know, the stories behind the dishes that I'm developing recipes for. And cookbooks really give you an opportunity to really dive in deeply and to really focus in on um, on something in a way that um, as a freelancer, you know, sometimes you jump from project to project. So it's really nice to have a sustained project. Um, and I, I love testing recipes. I love developing them and making sure that they work and trying new things. It's kind of this perfect blend between um, your scientific brain and your creative brain. So I would say that's my favorite part. Mm. And so that brings up a couple of questions for me. And so I guess the first question would be, I think it has to do with the difference of finding recipes online versus having that cookbook. And it's a cookbook Mm. really is more than just recipes, not that there's anything wrong with that um, at all. But I kind of look at it as putting together a in a way, a concert. You think about the dynamics and and the arc of what you're containing in that book, and then there's all that context that you give people, which you won't have if you're finding that recipe online. And so it seems like it's a great resource that is an important resource even to our own cultural history. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are lots of online publications Food 52 or, you know, places like Food and Wine that have online wings that they're really, they're taking their recipe development seriously. And they're also taking their, um, their storytelling seriously. So, you know, I don't necessarily think it has to be the divide between digital and print that makes the difference in terms of the content of the quality. But when you have a book, you can kind of assume that there's been a certain level of care in crafting it. It's harder to assume that when you find a random recipe online um, from maybe a random blog, but mm-hmm. you don't know whether that that person has much experience yet or, or anything. So, but I think the divide between books and digital is, at least in terms of quantity, I'm sorry, quality of content is actually shrinking. Oh, that's actually a good thing to note. And because I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess there's just so much of it out there that people are now yeah. taking responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, that is, you know, when you have a book that someone took the time to really curate it and to think about what recipes should be in there, and it's it's less freewheeling and sprawling. So for folks who really want more guidance in terms of what they're going to make or that sort of a thing, then then a book is really kind of gives you that. And so you talked a little bit about, or you mentioned in passing, um, recipe testing. And so what's that like for you? Um, what's that process like? Sure. It starts in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, I write almost exclusively about Jewish food. So some of the recipes I, I'm developing are very traditional and, and have a lot of precedent and they go back generations and generations. And some are more creative interpretations of mine on traditional dishes. And, you know, there's a mix of both. So if I'm doing a traditional recipe, I try really hard to find someone to cook it with first. It doesn't always work out logistically, but, you know, I will, I'll cook with a woman from Morocco if I'm making a specific Moroccan dish or I'll go, you know, I'll try to meet a baker uh, who's made a certain type of Sephardic pastry before or things that are less familiar for me and that I feel like I need to see the technique before I can help to translate it. Mm. Um, So when I'm cooking with these people, I'm not asking them for specific recipes. I'm more watching their hands and 
smelling the smells and getting the, the visual and sensorial cues that I need so that I can translate that onto the page. Because uh, to me, that's the most important job of a recipe developer is not necessarily to you know, make something that tastes delicious, although you hope and work for that to be the goal as well, but really to, to give people the, the clues that they need to, to have success with the recipe. That's the scientific part. Um, although there's a bit of poetry in it also, because sometimes you find yourself, like my knish recipe, knishes are these delicious, I'm sure you know, but uh, parcels like pastries, savory pastries that are filled with potato or mushroom or kasha. And to make them, you kind of have to fill the dough and roll it and then kind of make indentations along it. And I was trying to think of how to best describe that. And this may not be entirely PC, but I I was thinking about in like old Kung Fu movies, how there's like this very specific karate chop motion that we kind of all can see in our heads. If I say karate chop, you know what I mean. And so <laughs> I was like basically karate chop along the dough in three <laughs> inch intervals. And so that really, to me, is like I'm, you're finding that precise, poetic language to translate what you saw and what you watched someone do to the page. So I do that. I also, I, I read a lot of historical cookbooks as ideas for what recipes I want to focus on. And again, I'm not using the exact recipes that I find in old cookbooks, but they're kind of starting points, entry points. Uh, and then it's just a lot of trial and error and thinking about cooking old recipes in a modern context and the fact that, you know, we have tools that are ancestors our grandmothers and great-grandmothers didn't have and you know we also had ingredients that they didn't have and so I try to take license in terms of making dishes taste good for a modern palate while still making an obvious through line to the tradition and the, the history. To me that sounds like such a creative project and yes intense work and all of that but it also sounds like fun too like what a great way to make a living. <laughs> It is. Yeah. I mean, when you're when you're the, the Jewish cookbook, which is my most recent book out, I know we're going to talk a little more about it, but that has 425 recipes in it. So when Whoa. you're talking that scale, it starts to be, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're taking very careful notes of was that one quarter of a teaspoon or one half of a teaspoon of cumin or was that, you know, did I twist the dough three times or two times? So there is a little bit of um, painstaking uh, work that goes into it as well. But it is, I feel super lucky to do the work that I do. So how did you get into the love of cooking and then decide, okay, this is the route I'm going to take. I can, I can make this be my work and I'm going to write cookbooks. How did all that happen? Yeah. So um, when I was in college, I, um, I studied environmental studies and religion. So those were my two my two uh, focuses. And, you know, I simultaneously during college uh, got really into cooking because I was living in this environmental studies house. It was basically like a, a living co-op and I had 17 roommates, if I remember correctly. And we made dinner for ourselves every night. And, you know, I grew up, my mom is a great cook and, but I never really had a lot of interest in it as a kid. I, I liked eating. I liked thinking about flavors, but I didn't really, it didn't spark my curiosity as a kid. So it was really when I was in college and living with these other students who, many of whom did love to cook, that I really kind of caught the bug. And I made a lot of really bad vegetarian food. Um, you know, nothing <laughs> against vegetarian food. I was a vegetarian for a long time, but you know what I mean? Like the very heavy kind of vulgar loaves and, and things that right. just, <laughs> um, are not terribly appetizing, but I definitely caught the bug. And then 
after college, I actually worked for an organization that combines my two passions of the environment and religion. It's, it's called Hazon, H-A-Z-O-N. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a Jewish environmental organization. And I ended up working on their um, their agriculture-based projects. So they have a, a community CSA, community-supported agriculture, where you buy directly from a farmer. So Hazon would partner with a farm and a synagogue or a JCC to be like the drop-off point where the farmer would bring the produce to, to the um, people who signed up. And then we did all sorts of great education between like discussing the connections between Jewish life and environmentalism and all of that. So working on those projects, I really started to make a lot of both professional and personal connections about the connection of of Jews and food and, and sustainability. And then at a certain point, I realized I didn't want to be in the nonprofit world anymore. It was not, it just wasn't my, my, you know, I wanted to write. I, mm-hmm. I basically came to, her, to terms with the fact that writing was my, my true passion. And so I just, I did the old adage of write what you know. And I started writing about Jews and food and sustainability. And, you know, the holidays would roll around and magazines and newspapers would want holiday related stories. So it kind of started organically in a way, you know, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then once I sort of scratched the surface of Jewish cuisine, it just opened up this entire world because, you know, Jewish food is so much more than the um, Eastern European Ashkenazi dishes that I grew up with um, when I you know, was growing mm-hmm. up in, in suburban Chicago. And so it just sparked something really, really wonderful. And I haven't gotten bored of it since. I've been doing it for 12 years now and I've written six cookbooks. I actually have a seventh one that I have just signed on to do, which I'm really excited about. Ooh. We can talk more. We can talk more about that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a way to travel the world and discover the world through the lens of one cuisine. And I think that's that's one of the most unique and exciting parts about Jewish cuisine. I agree. That's what keeps it so exciting. And you can just have any spice in your cupboard and know that you're you're on the right track to finding um, a use for that with some traditional kind of Jewish food. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So let's talk about the most recent cookbook that you have now called The Jewish Cookbook, because um, I think it relates to just what we were talking about. And maybe you could give our listeners just an, a short overall concept of what what kinds of recipes and what focus you have for this cookbook. Sure. So the book is actually part of a larger series of books. The publisher, Fiden, that I worked with, has what they call their Culinary Bible series. So they have this series of books that is, they're meant to basically encapsulate an entire cuisine or as much as close to as an entire cuisine as you can get um, within the, the spine of, of a book. So they have Mexico, the cookbook. They have China, the cookbook. They have Peru, the cookbook, and and so on and so on. And then they also have ones like the breakfast cookbook, uh, which is, you know, it's a a cross-cultural book that explores breakfast throughout the world and the vegan cookbook. And so they asked me, they reached out to me, I guess it was almost four years ago at this point. I I don't even remember when they reached out, if I would write the Jewish book for them. And um, I mean, it was the honor of a lifetime to be asked to do that. And it, it felt, you know, very much like the next um, obvious step 
for me and the work that I was doing because the goal of the book is to basically capture all of Jewish cuisine in one book. And, you know, you obviously, (laughs) you can't do that because Jewish cuisine is so diverse and, you know, every family has their different way of doing things. So if you actually put every recipe in, it would, you know, it would be 7,000 recipes long. But, you know, the, the book explores Ashkenazi cuisine and it explores dishes from Morocco and from, you know, uh, India, where there's a, a historical Jewish community in Italy, where there's a historical Jewish community, Mexico City, um, America, like literally uh, Ethiopia, like the whole, almost the whole globe can be represented because Jews have lived and cooked almost everywhere. And they've created sort of these micro cuisines within the larger umbrella of, of Jewish cuisine. And the dishes look really, really different. You know, what you would eat on a Friday night for Shabbat dinner in um, in Tunisia is in- entirely different than what you would eat in um, in Turkey or in I don't know trying to think of uh, South Africa the, you know all these mm-hmm. all these different places so I really I tried to make sure the book represented like no matter where your family's background was from if you were Jewish you would find yourself in the pages of the book and then even if you weren't Jewish you would still find things that felt familiar because Jewish cuisine often overlaps with the cuisines of the specific locations that it developed. Right. Um, Jews have historically eaten the foods of their neighbors or similar foods and found ways to make them kosher and to kind of fit the, the confines of, of Jewish law. And that is kind of how this very specific but also very expansive cuisine developed. And the book sounds so wonderful. I mean, I've seen pages of it, and the cover's beautiful, and the contents are amazing. And just to let folks know that, we'll, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but Lee is also sharing two recipes from that cookbook for your holiday um, in case you're looking to try something a little new. We'll get to that in a second, but that's very cool. So let's talk about the holiday. And we're doing this episode a little bit in advance of the holiday so people have a chance to actually buy ingredients and kind of plan if they're adding new things to their menu. And so I'm wondering if your holiday food prep this year is going to be different because of the pandemic or because of other issues. What does your holiday food prep look like? I I did have the thought, especially on Passover when the pandemic had just started and everybody was in panic mode. I I had the thought of literally just making a giant pot of chicken soup and like existing on that. Yes. Um, (laughs) Ultimately, the the Jewish mother in me didn't allow myself. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, it will definitely be a pared down affair this year. So do you have any additional suggestions for listeners about uh, how to make food prep during this time be a little less stressful, knowing that often now people have their parents have their kids at home. There isn't even the break that they might be off at school. And so in a way, I guess it could be help at the, in the kitchen. But I don't know. Do you mm. have any other thoughts about helpful thoughts for folks? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a wisdom to holiday prep that um, is true in a pandemic as well, but just on a greater scale. Definitely plan in advance. It doesn't have to be, you know, we're about a month out now, so you don't have to plan right this second. But in the two weeks before, a week before, think about the shape of the meals. You're observant. Are you going to be doing all of the meals? Are you going to be doing uh, some of the meals and subsisting on leftovers for the other part? Um, and 
decide what you're going to make and, and then try to make stuff in advance. Like a lot of Jewish cuisine is actually very make ahead friendly because traditionally on, on the Sabbath, uh, Jews don't cook with some electricity or heat for the 24 hour, 25 hour period between sunset on Friday and sundown on Saturday night. So a lot of dishes are things that can be made in advance and either eaten at room temperature or through the miracles of modern technology can be warmed on a hot plate uh, that's, that's left, you know, overnight. So make a lot ahead. Uh, focus on simplicity this year. Like really, like this is not the year to be sourcing ingredients from wherever, unless that brings you joy, in which case go for it. But, you know, if you can really focus on fresh ingredients, what you can find at like the local farmer's market. And let the ingredients shine so that you kind of have a leg up on what you're cooking in terms of flavor. Like, you don't have to, like, go crazy this year. And then try to, like, if you have kiddos at home, cook at night. You know, I I often, like, I love trying to get my kids to cook with me. My 17-month-old is obviously a little too young, but my six-year-old sometimes can be coerced into doing it. Um, I usually (laughs) have, like, a little bowl of chocolate chips on the counter and, like, let him snack while he helps me. But, you know, when I'm doing, like, the bigger stuff, like, a brisket or whatever, like do it at night and when they go to bed and then it's ready for you. That sounds like great pointers for people. And so I appreciate that. So let me ask you, let me ask you another question about holiday cooking. So let's say a family has, you know, a family favorite that's been served for Rosh Hashanah or Erev Yom Kippur for generations. And you want to, you want to serve that. You want to be respectful, but you also have this feeling like you want to make it your own in some way. Do you have any suggestions of easy, foolproof ways to kind of tweak those recipes? Yeah, yeah. Um, So the cookbook that I wrote previously to the Jewish cookbook is called Modern Jewish Cooking. And that book is basically uh, designed to do exactly that. It takes traditional dishes from around the world, uh, Jewish dishes from around the world, and and does update them. So, for example, there's a a pumpkin butter challah. Um, So it's challah, but it has pumpkin puree in the dough, and then it has um, apple butter and chopped apple kind of threaded through. So that's Mm. like a a delicious... Challah doesn't need to be updated. Challah is perfect as is, but that's one example of a way that you can kind of spice up the the dish. Mm -hmm. Um, And... There's lots of lots of examples from from that book, but in general, you know, I think using better quality ingredients, the, the freshest possible quality ingredients, is one way to do it, and really experimenting with flavors, right? So if you're making um, a traditional like roast chicken and everybody wants wants it that you know just kind of plain, you know, maybe you keep it plain, but then you have on the side like a you make like a romesco sauce or something that people can drizzle over the top, and that just kind of updates it. Uh, Romesco sauce is a Spanish, it's not a Jewish dish, but it's like a Spanish um, red pepper um, almond-like sauce. And, it, you know, it would just basically enliven uh, a regular roast chicken dish. So that, you know, you could do that. Um, I often find adding fresh herbs and lemon zest is a way to update most dishes. So, like, if you're making, I'm trying to think, like, carrots uh, is often eaten on Rosh Hashanah in Ashkenazi households, like stewed carrots with maybe like like a sweet and sour flavor. Mm-hmm. So maybe you stew the carrots, but instead you do like heaps and heaps of fresh herbs, parsley or cilantro or mint or whatever, and then like lemon zest and, I don't know, some like Ceylon or like date syrup um, or honey over the top. And then that's, 
uh, maybe some chopped garlic. I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here, but like, <laughs> you know, you, you take, take a dish that feels traditional and then, and then kind of find, you know, a way to garnish it in a new way. Uh huh. Wow. That sounds really good, actually. <laughs> I, I might make it. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Put those carrots on the menu after all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, traditional Jewish cooking, especially Ashkenazi, you know, Eastern Europe cuisine, tends to have become very, very heavy, lots of oil, lots of sugar. And that's tasty, but we, you know, we don't really eat like that in the 21st century. Or many of, you know, many of us have kind of gravitated towards lighter, fresher interpretations of dishes. So I often find like my mom's apple cake recipe, which is amazing and dates back however many generations. Um, I can cut the sugar in it by up to half a cup sometimes, but it still tastes great. So, you know, if, if you have an old recipe and you're just like choking at the thought of putting in two cups of sugar, you can probably cut it back <laughs> um, quite a bit without actually missing it. Well, these are great pointers and I think really helpful. And sometimes people just need a little spark. And so some of these ideas sound simple enough that it can spark somebody's creativity and excitement about looking at dishes in a, in a different way and feeling really proud of what they put on their table. So I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah, actually, just to, on the sauce front, Jewish cuisine has a lot of amazing sauces. There's tremula, which is a, a very herby, garlicky, kind of, kind of like pesto, but um, different herbs and, and human. There's muhamara, which is a Syrian uh, red pepper and walnut and pomegranate molasses dip or thread and a lot of a lot of these dips and threads can be used as sauces so you can again like kind of go to the tradition and maybe different corners of it and find sauces that can be put on the side and then just people can drizzle as they want so if you know your great aunt gladys is coming to join you um she can have it plain if she wants and you can have it um I love that. And my own personal cooking weakness is the lack of using sauces. So you've already given me some um, some very cool ideas for this year, which, yeah, which I appreciate. So just to let my listeners know, um, Leah is sharing two recipes with us. They'll be on my website. And, you know, they're just in time for the holidays, but also they're the kind of recipes that you can cook anytime, um, Shabbat dinner or any, any kind of dinner that you're having. Um, and so the recipes she's sharing are thyme and honey roast chicken and apple chalet. And everybody knows what a roast chicken is, but maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the apple chalet. Sure. So apple chalet is, it's an Alsatian dish from, from France, um, the Alsace region of France, which is actually where Ashkenazi cuisine originated. People think of Ashkenazi cuisine as being um, Poland and Lithuania and Eastern Europe, but it actually, um, it started kind of where Germany and France meet. And this dish is, it's basically, if you're familiar with a kugel, uh, it is in the kugel family, but instead of using noodles or potatoes as the base, it uses bread. So it's almost like, it's very much like a bread pudding and it has apples in it and sugar. And I'm forgetting the spices. I think there's probably cinnamon in there, but it, it kind of almost straddles the dessert table and the side dish uh, mm-hmm. table. But it's so, so delicious on Rosh Hashanah because sweetness is sort of paramount on this holiday and the idea of eating sweet foods to represent 
our wishes for a sweet year. And apples in particular are symbolic Rosh Hashanah food. So it's really lovely next to roasted chicken and very kind of tender on the inside, but it cooks for a while in a slow in a low oven. So it has this kind of caramelized, almost burnt, but not quite perimeter, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a hallmark of Ashkenazi cuisine, the almost burnt, but just on the right side. <laughs> and it's really, it's really, it's very delicious. It's something that the kids really love usually because it has apples and it's sweet and it, you can tell them they're eating cake right. <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> so it's definitely one that if, if people are looking for something in the Kugel realm, but a little different that I would suggest they try. Perfect. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. So bef- before we say goodbye, I thought maybe you could do just a brief little comment about your other cookbooks, just to let folks know what's out there. And um, also mention your new project if you are feeling like you want to. And um, and then how people can find you. Sure. So my books are uh, Modern Jewish Cooking, which is the one I mentioned um, earlier, that, uh, just a, a little bit ago, that kind of takes traditional recipes and, and updates them. Um, I love that book. It was a chance for me to really stretch my creative wings and kind of think outside the flavor box. So that is one of my favorites. Um, And then I also have a small series of books. They're called the Little Book series. So it's the Little Book of Jewish Appetizers, the Little Book of Jewish Feasts, and the Little Book of Jewish Sweets. So it's basically, each one is 25 recipes long, and it's meant to encapsulate kind of the best of the best of those different categories of Jewish food. And they're actually very little. They're like pint-sized books, Um, (laughs) still readable and beautiful. But we thought of them because, you know, A, people love to give books as gifts, but everybody has a very crowded cookbook shelf. So this is sort of a really nice way to gift a book to yourself or to someone you love without taking up too much real estate. Um, And also kind of an a la carte book. You can either collect all three or you can, you know, choose which one uh, you love. So Mm -hmm. I love my little book. And then obviously the Jewish cookbook that we talked about, that's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, 425 recipes. And it's, it's actually not a giant book. It's um, remarkably spelt for being that many, much, much to the credit of, uh, Biden's design team. So, but I feel like that one we talked about a lot, so I won't say too much more. And then my my forthcoming book, which is literally like this is hot off the presses news, is going to delve into something that I actually spoke about and taught about at the great big Jewish food fest that you mentioned earlier. So it's going to be focusing on uh, the cuisine of of Roman Jews. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, so it's meant to sort of be um, a travel travel focused book, um, and we're all sort of aching to travel right now. <laughs> so, yes, we are. And uh, Rome's Jewish cuisine is over two thousand years old, and it has many many overlapping components to it, and just a fascinating history around you know Jews living in in the ghettos uh, for three hundred years, and how that shaped the cuisine, um, and finding deliciousness in the in the trauma of that. So that's the book, and I'm excited to be working on it, and I'm also really, really, really hoping I can get there, get back to Rome, because I've been there a bunch, and I, I've fallen in love with that community time and time again, but I really want to be able to tell their story, you know, since it's not my, mm-hmm. I'm not a Roman Jew, so hopefully in the next six to nine months, I'll be able to spend some time there and uh, cook with people, and yeah. Well, I hope so, so too. Yeah. That means a lot of positive stuff for all of us. Um, if that's if tra- that kind of travel is possible, so can hope yeah. for that, right? <laughs> yes. It's been really fun talking with you, Leah, and I want to thank you so much for all your high holiday 
info and suggestions. I know that they're appreciated by my listeners. And um, so thanks so much for being my guest today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for um, thinking of me. My trusted advisor and recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, please don't forget to subscribe to my podcast. Follow my Instagram account at Beth the Jewish Foodie and write a review or share a like on my Facebook group page. And please do tell your friends to listen. It's the best way for my podcast to continue to grow. If you have any comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating. <laughs>